Good morning, First Baptist. It is so good to be with you this morning. For those who don't know me, uh, my name is Jack Fitzgibbons. I am the family pastor at Pinecrest Baptist Church. That means I am the over the youth and the children over there. Our psalm this morning is Psalm 93. Psalm 93. And this is the last week of your series, The Summer in the Psalms. And this main idea of our psalm, Psalm 93, has been the source of controversy throughout history. People have died because they declared what Psalm 93 teaches. Families have been torn apart because individuals refused to deny and renounce what Psalm 93 teaches. And yet the theme of Psalm 93 has also been the source of great comfort. It has been the anchor for the souls of many who have walked through the trials and hardships of life. And so as we read Psalm 93 and as we study it, I want us to see seven things or seven points. And so would you please read Psalm 93 with me? It says this, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The prophet Isaiah, in his book Isaiah, tells us how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The one who brings the good news of happiness brings the message that the psalmist is declaring in Psalm 93. Your God reigns. That is the message that brings happiness and salvation. David, when they're dedicating the temple in 1 Chronicles 16, he says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. These three words, only two in the original Hebrews, is in the words of Scott Swain, the fundamental claim of Christian theology and teaching. This is the bedrock of our faith. The Lord reigns. And so that's point number one. The Lord reigns. This is the message that is so controversial. Not that we believe in a God and that that God has some sort of authority, but that we as Christians hold to the message, hold to the belief that the Lord reigns. You may notice that your Bible has the word Lord in all caps. And when you read your English Bible and when you see the word Lord in all caps, some of you may know this, the original writer is invoking the very name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. And so the psalmist is not just saying God reigns or a God reigns. He is saying Yahweh reigns. Yahweh is robed in majesty. That is the theme of our psalm. And what this means, what we're saying is that no one and nothing else reigns except for God. There is nothing anyone can do to thwart him or disrupt his plans. We don't have to fear that one day God will not rule. We don't have to fear and worry that there's some spiritual 
force out there that can disrupt or put a stop to God's creation and put a stop to God's plan and His rule over His creation. Back in the day, there was that hit TV show that some of you may have watched called Lost. Did anybody watch Lost when it was on the air? And so if you know what Lost is, it's about these group of people, they're on an airplane, don't watch it if you're afraid of flying, and they crash and they land on this mysterious island and all these weird things happen. There's a polar bear that shows up at one point. And so towards the end of the show, I'm about to ruin the whole show for you so you don't have to watch it, but towards the end of the show, you, you find out one of the big twists is that on this island, there are two like spiritual forces, two spiritual powers. And the good one, his name is Jacob, and the bad one, his name is the man in black. Like a very, You can tell he's the bad guy because of his name. And so basically, it turns out the whole show, these two forces, these two spiritual powers have been duking it out, fighting each other. And as a result of what they're doing, the human characters were affected. The lives of the human characters were affected by this spiritual battle that was happening on the island. It's kind of the TV show version of that picture on Facebook that you see of Jesus and the devil arm wrestling. Have you seen that one? Jesus and the devil arm wrestling. That is the opposite of the picture that the Bible paints for us. Ancient myths believed that the God of creation was at war with the force of chaos. And some of us can go through life thinking when something bad happens to us that somehow God has lost control. He lost that battle, and now he has to work to work that out for our good. That God was somehow caught off guard by what has happened to us. But that is not what the Scriptures teach. That is not what Psalm 93 teaches. Psalm 93 teaches that the Lord and the Lord alone reigns. The Lord and the Lord alone has authority. The idea that God is arm wrestling Satan or is having to figure out how to get around some unnamed spiritual force has more in common with mythology than the God of the Bible. Our God is in control. God has reigned, He is reigning, and He will reign. Charles Spurgeon said, this is one of the most joyful utterances ever leaped from mortal lips. That's that Charles Spurgeon way of speaking. This is one of the most joyful things we can hear. The Lord reigns. Point number two, the Lord reigns as king. The Lord reigns as king. The psalmist uses language like robed in majesty. The Lord is full of majestic power and strength. And the scriptures show us what kind of king God is. Because if you study history, you know that there are good kings and there are bad kings. If you read the book of Acts chapter 18, Gallio, the ruler of Corinth, he, did, he chose not to get involved in Jewish affairs uh, when they bring Paul before his throne. And then when he sees a man getting beat up and assaulted in his town, he chooses to do nothing about it. He was very passive. But that is not what the scriptures teach us about the Lord. The Lord is an active king. He is active in his creation. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 7 that it is God himself who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the grass of the field. Me and my wife were at the beach recently. We were sitting there and we saw like, I think it was a seagull or something. He like was floating above the water and he just dove straight into it and pulled out a fish. And see what the world teaches, that's just like a natural consequence of what happens in nature. But the scriptures teach us that that was God feeding that fish. That's how much involved God is in his creation. He feeds the birds of the air. 
Job 37 verse 10 says that by the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. Now we don't experience that a whole lot down here in South Georgia, but God lays down the ice. He is involved of the laying of ice in the winter. Psalm 107 speaks of God commanding and raising the stormy wind. He brings the wind. He brings the ice. He feeds the birds. He is actively and intimately involved in what He has created. He did not just create it and walk away. Some of us go through life thinking that, that God created us and He just walked away and turned His back. But God is active in what He created. And He's active in and through His church. When we are saved by the grace of God, when we enter into the church of God, both the universal church and our local church, we become the hands and feet of Christ. We become a part of the body that God is using to accomplish His plans and His purposes. God does not need us, but He uses us. He uses our proclamation of the gospel. He uses what we do as a church to fulfill His plans. God is active in the local church. So the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns as king. And thirdly, the Lord reigns as a warrior. The Lord reigns as a warrior. If you look down at verse 1 again, he says, He has put on strength as his belt. This is language to describe someone going into battle. And throughout the scriptures, we see of God fighting his enemies and fighting for his people. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 30 through 32, we read of Korah after he rebelled against Moses and the Lord, him and his entire family being swallowed up by the earth. In the story of the Exodus, God parts the sea so that his people can walk through unharmed. God was fighting for his people. And nowhere is God's power over his enemies more seen than in the cross of Jesus Christ. God is an active king. He's an active warrior. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 tells us that Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God defeated Korah. He wiped out the Egyptians. And most importantly of all, he has destroyed the power of sin and death for all who swear allegiance to him. He is a king. He is a warrior. He is active in his creation. And because of this, the psalmist can declare right there at the end of verse 1, he says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Because of who God is as king and warrior, the psalmist can declare that the world will never be moved, that the world will never spiral out of control. Many of us have gone through times of life where it has felt like things are spiraling out of control where it feels like the world is moving in a way and we have no idea what to do. We read of tragedies in our communities and across the world, and it can cause us to spiral. It can cause us to wonder where God is. The tragedies of life can cause us to forget that truth that we learned years ago in the church daycare, that He's got the whole world in His hands. But the psalmist declares because of who God is, the world will never be moved. The world will never spiral out of His control. We can also forget that the reality of God's rule over all creation, God rules over creation, does not mean we will never experience suffering or hardship. If you go back and look at Psalm 89, just four psalms 
before this one. We find the psalmist asking the question that so many of us have asked in the past or even today. He asks, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? You see, the reality of God's rule means that with the same voice and with the same prayer, we can both lament and praise Him. I'm not preaching on Psalm 89, but the very beginning of that psalm says this. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Because we believe that Yahweh reigns, and Yahweh reigns alone. We can both lament and praise. We can lament the circumstances in our life. We can lament and weep over the things that happen to us and to those around us. But with that same prayer, we can also praise. Because we know that creation will never spiral out of control. That He's still got the world in His hands. And we can praise God for what He tells us in Romans, that He is working out all things for our good. Now when He says all things, He means all things. He doesn't just mean all things except the bad. He said He means all things. The Lord reigns in the good and the bad. And this kind of heart heart posture that we see in the Psalms is not possible if we live by what the world teaches. My wife and I watched a movie recently where the theme of the movie was this. It was essentially that in times of sorrow, when you feel isolated and alone, to find meaning in those that you love and to be kind. Now that sounds sweet, right? That sounds all nice and hallmarky. But if we stop and think about it, If we stop and compare that worldview to what we see in the Scriptures, we realize that it is incredibly hopeless. It is is like sand. If in times of sorrow we turn to other humans, what do we do if those individuals let us down? Or what do we do when that individual passes away? Who are we to go to then? If our hope and sorrow is simply being kind, what happens if we don't feel like being kind? That is a shaky foundation. It is only the reality of God's kingship and rule over creation and our salvation that gives us true hope, that gives us true joy. That is why Isaiah and David can declare that in response to hearing that the Lord reigns, we should rejoice because that is the, that is the source of our hope and joy. And in verse 2, the psalmist declares that God has not reigned just starting in Genesis 1. The Lord reigns. He reigns as king. He reigns as warrior. And point number four, the Lord reigns eternally. The Lord reigns eternally. He praises God that His rule over the earth is everlasting. Before there was time, God was. Before Genesis 1, God was. That's what His name means. I am who I am. He has always existed. He will always exist and He will never change. Before time began, God reigned and He reigns today. He reigned before the earth was created. Notice in verse 1, the psalmist says the the world is established. But then down in verse 2, he says, Your throne is is established from of old. God's throne has existed before the creation. Despite wars and rebellions, despite mass persecution of the church, God reigns. No one and nothing has ever been able to take Him off His throne, and no one ever 
will. There's a great picture of this in Isaiah chapter 6. There's, Isaiah chapter 6 is the famous, Here I am, Lord, send me chapter. And Isaiah opens up that chapter with this phrase. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was the king over Judah, and, he, and it led to national prosperity when he was king over Judah. And yet after his death, what does Isaiah see? He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that the King Uzziah died, this king who brought us national prosperity and who reigned over the land, he died. And yet I saw the Lord. Kings and presidents come and go. Political parties and political movements are here today and they are gone tomorrow. Yet the kingdom of God and His reign is from everlasting to everlasting. At the end of the, at the, end of the age, when Jesus comes back, His kingdom will stand. And His kingdom will stand alone. So the Lord reigns eternally. Point number five, the Lord reigns over chaos. The Lord reigns over chaos. Floodwaters in the ancient Near East represented chaos to the people. The Israelites would hear of the sea, and what they would see was uncontrollable chaos. The ocean and the floodwaters cannot be contained. We can't control them. Even today, with our scientific and technological advancements, we cannot stop tsunamis. We cannot stand against the current of the ocean. And we can forget this in our day and age because we go to the sea, we go to the ocean to relax. We go to the very thing that caused chaos in the hearts of the Israelites. We find happiness and relaxation when we go to the beach and read with the sea out there. But did you know that only 5% of the ocean has been explored? That we know more about space than we do the ocean? Isn't that terrifying? The majority of the ocean has never been explored. Only three people have ever gone down into the deepest parts of the ocean, and one of them was the guy who made Titanic. Only three people. The ocean is uncontrollable. And yet notice what the psalmist says. He says, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And I love that language of the Lord on high is mighty. Because here's the ocean down where we are, and it's uncontrollable, and it's chaotic. And if we ever get, t- get lost in the current, you know, there's no one in the ocean that can help us except God at that point. And yet there is God above the waves of the sea. We read in the Gospels of Jesus calming the wind, calming the waves, walking on the very thing that we can't control. And the disciples cry out, even the winds and the waves obey Him. He is God over the chaos. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 13. He describes the nations that rage as mighty waters and like the thundering of the seas. Yet, the prophet says, the Lord will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Those forces that seem so chaotic in our lives, those forces that are out of our control, they're in God's control. They're in God's hands. The Lord is over both nature. He's over the nations. He is over it all. The things that feel so out of our control, out of our power, God is still in control. He reigns. He is king over those. 
And so verses 1 through 4, they've established the absolute power of God. We read these and we can see that God and God alone has absolute power. And we've all heard that famous phrase that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so perhaps we've seen this play out in our own lives. We've seen people's true character and heart been revealed when they get into roles of authority. That they get some sort of power and we see who they truly are. But as we read verses, verse 5, we see that this is not true of God. Because yes, the Lord reigns, and He reigns as a king and as a warrior. He reigns over chaos, and He reigns eternally, but He also reigns truthfully. Look at verse 5, I'll read it again. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The psalmist praises God that out of His kingship and out of His decrees that what the Lord says is trustworthy. We have no reason to fear or doubt the truthfulness of God's word. He says holiness befits or adorns God's house. And when the psalmist praises God for this, what he's saying is there is no moral corruption in God. There is no moral impurity in who God is. No matter, so some of our translations will say, like mine says befit, yours may say adorn or um, I forgot the last word, becometh, that's the King James. And so all that means is that God's house is marked not just by absolute power, like we just saw in verses 1 through 4, but an absolute holiness in verse 5. He is not like us. The one who has absolute power is absolutely pure. We can trust Him. We can trust that His commands are good. That when He tells us to do something, when He gives a command, it is for His glory and for our good. We don't have to fear that one day He will change. We will never wake up and see that God's character has changed. Or He said one thing and actually meant another. Or He said He would do this, but then He wound up doing something completely different. God has absolute power and He uses that power to bring about His glory in our good. If you were alive in the 70s, I was not. But if you study history, you will know that our president, Richard Nixon, once went on TV and emphatically declared to the nation that the people of America have a right to know if their president was a crook. And he was not a crook. If you know how that story ends, months later, he resigned because he was a crook. Because he lied and he was spying on people. See, we never have to worry that that's going to happen with God that God will tell us one thing and do another. We never have to fear that God will say He's going to do this, will say He's going to work out our salvation for good, and then not do it. Some of us struggle to believe that. We struggle to believe that God means what He says. Some of us struggle to think that we're going to get to heaven one day after swearing allegiance to King Jesus and having His Holy Spirit, and He's going to somehow reject us at the gate. But in order for that to happen, according to Charles Spurgeon, you would have to be the first person in history for that to ever happen to. Because God does not change His mind. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that He should lie, or son of man that He should change His mind. Does He speak and not act? That is who God is. That is another thing we mean, or what God means when He gives us His divine name, Yahweh, I am who I am. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
His rule and reign has been marked by trustworthiness and holiness. And it will be like that forever. The psalmist declares that in verse 5, O Lord, forevermore. For many, there is no greater news than the news that God reigns. And He has absolute power. and He's absolutely pure. But for others in our world, it causes them to react in anger and in unbelief. Because in our culture, what is deemed the highest good is our ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. That is what our culture sees as the purpose and goal of life. In our culture, and even many people in our churches today, we're okay with the idea of there being a God. We like the story of Christ at Christmas and Christ at Easter. We love watching the Ten Commandments, watching that that movie. But we don't like it when God tells us what to do. We don't like it when God commands something over us. We tend to we try to water down who God is as like being our buddy or being our co-pilot. But the scriptures teach us that God is not our co-pilot. God is the pilot, and we are in the back of the plane. God reigns. The scriptures like Psalm 93 scream at us that God and God alone reigns. He and He alone is king. He is sovereign and He is trustworthy. See, God's decrees are just like Him. They're trustworthy. They're good. We can trust them. We don't have to resist His rule and His reign. We can trust that when He tells us to do something, it is for our good. And so as we close, I want us to go back to the beginning. If you remember, I quoted scriptures that say that the truth that the Lord reigns is cause for us to rejoice. But that is cause for us to shout and praise and worship. And so I want to ask you today, is this the rock upon which you stand in times of sorrow? You see, there's this, there was a, on the website for the New York Times, they have a guide called How to Be Happy. How to Be Happy. The four categories that are broken down on the website are mind, home, work and money, and life. And all of these categories represent an area of life that the New York Times believes that one must work on in order to be happy. And so, for the mind section, they tell us that if we want to be happy, we have to conquer negative thinking and practice optimism. Under home, they recommend turning your bedroom to resemble a luxury hotel room for you to be happy. For relationships, they say to spend time with happy people. For, uh, with work and money, they recommend finding purpose at work. And reminding yourself that money doesn't buy happiness, which is kind of ironic because they just said to get stuff for your bedroom to turn that into a luxury hotel room. And so my question for the times is this, and the questions we need to ask ourselves, would an individual be able to follow what the New York Times tells us how to be happy? Would they be able to follow that and be happy after doing those things even when they just heard about a cancer diagnosis? Would conquering negative thinking, practicing optimism, and having a luxury-style hotel bedroom, will that help us after a cancer diagnosis? Will that give us joy when us and our children fight and when we grow apart, when our jobs become the source of all of our stress? That is sand compared to the rock of the certainty that the Lord reigns. We are created to find our hope and joy, not in bedrooms, not in friendships, but in the Lord Almighty. 
who has reigned for eternity. Just a few weeks ago, you heard a sermon on Psalm 90. If you remember, Psalm 90 was a psalm of lament. And towards the end of that psalm, you read of the Israelites crying out for the Lord to return and to have pity on them. And what lies underneath these verses, if you go back and read Psalm 90, what lies underneath the surface is the belief that yes, life is hard and difficult. And it can feel like we are spiraling. Yet the one who sits on the throne is merciful. That our God will not forsake and abandon His people. The one who sits on the throne is all-powerful. He's able to comfort us and is able and willing to show us mercy. That kind of heart posture, that kind of attitude is only possible when we cling to the reality of what Psalm 93 teaches. That the Lord reigns. He reigns as king. He reigns as warrior. He reigns eternally. He reigns over chaos. He reigns truthfully. And point number seven, the Lord reigns. Rejoice. The Lord reigns. Rejoice. That is why Isaiah says this is a message of good news. That is why David calls for the heavens to be glad and the earth to rejoice. God Almighty reigns. He reigns. He is king. He is over all things. For Christians, for us today, who read this psalm in light of the New Testament, in light of what Christ has done for us, we can rejoice that God is not only ruling and in control over, our salva- over creation, but also over our salvation. God is sovereign over creation and our salvation. The New Testament tells us that Christ is the author and the, prote- and the protector of our faith. Romans promises us that those whom God has justified, He will glorify. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, if you have sworn allegiance to King Jesus and you have submitted to His rule and to His glorious reign, you are safe. Not necessarily from suffering. You will go through hardship, but you are safe. God is with you. He is keeping you. He will keep you forever. And that is why we can rejoice.